The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A young man cleanses his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate, ready to study under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we'll bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for this nation we live in, for the freedoms that we have. We continue to pray for our president, for the various security agencies whose job it is to find and discover information related to uh, enemies' attempts and terrorist attempts on this land. We pray that you would give them wisdom, give them uh, the skills they need. We pray that you would make the clues available. Father, we pray that you would confound and confuse the enemy, that you would continue to maintain your wall of fire around this nation. Now, Father, as we gather together tonight to study your word, we pray that we might gain a greater appreciation for your control of history as well as the the dynamics that go on in the process of, of the advance of history. Now, Father, we pray that you would also challenge us as believers with the fact that you control History and despite the chaos that swirls around us at times and the various threats that may appear on the horizon, and even when these threats do materialize into uh, horrible events like those of September 11th, that we know that you are still in control and that we can still relax and trust in you. We pray that you would challenge us with the things we learned tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel 10 is one of those uh, chapters that is... Uh, gives us sort of a window, an opening as to what actually goes on in history. See, one of the major issues, if you've ever gone beyond just studying basic history like you do in high school or junior high or most college courses into what is called historiography, which is the philosophy of history or studying history, one of the major issues is always causation. And the problem with almost all, well, the problem with all secular historians in almost every uh, histor- historiography or philosophy of history that that dominates today is that they seek for causation of history within history. 
They look inside of history, and you will have things like, for example, a Marxist interpretation of history, which emphasizes certain economics and the downtrodden and the poor and uh, things of that nature. Then, on the other hand, you have uh, materi- more materialistic and deterministic uh, causation of history. You have uh, certain other approaches that emphasize geography, geographical factors. Uh, uh, natural factors such as whether or not a land has a lot of natural resources such as oil or gold or different minerals or things like that. And there are various different theories of, of causation, but the scripture presents a view that has a causation that is outside of the crea- of creation itself and that the ultimate cause of history is God who controls history. When we come to a chapter like Daniel 10, there's three basic problems that have confronted uh, interpreters and confronted people and led to distortions of the material here. And the first problem is the problem of a materialistic view of causation in history. We look at social factors, economic factors, geographical factors, but what we discover in this chapter is that history, what moves things forward in history is something much more, dy- much more complex, much more dynamic, and that history itself has many different dimensions. One of the reasons we opt for a materialistic view is related to the second problem, and that is there is an inherent rationalism and anti-supernatural bias in modern historiography and modern culture, and that goes back to the early Enlightenment in the 17th century. And in that anti-supernaturalism and rationalism, there is an intentional exclusion of any kind of supernatural impact. And along with that, especially as rationalistic theology developed in the 19th century, there was a rejection of anything uh, related to angels and the impact of angels in history so that uh, angels were just relegated to the realm of, of Christian mythology. And there's a rejection among rationalistic thinkers of anything supernatural, not only God, but also and including angels. But the third problem is just the opposite problem, and that's the problem of mysticism. And these are the folks who, who give undue emphasis to the angels, especially, I mean, to supernatural forces, especially the angels, where they're, these are the folks that find a demon behind every tree and see an angel everywhere, and we've really seen the, the reaction up from the late 19th century, mid-19th century, up to the, let's say, 1950s, uh, very few people, and I'm talking, thinking in terms of the world system, were emphasizing angels. In most Protestant evangelical denominations, in fact, there was a, the trend was to reduce Satan to just sort of a personification of an evil force. There was no real person of Satan. There were no real demons. Demon possession in the Bible was just some sort of antiquated, primitive description of psychological disease and mental illness. There weren't really demons or demon possession. So that was the effect of rationalism was just to reject everything about the angels. And then we started seeing a reaction to that and go all the way to the other extreme so that by the 1990s, you, angels are hot stuff. You buy little angels in every store you go into, and you have angels on greeting cards. You have television shows about angels, none of which has anything to do with what the Bible actually reveals about angels. And then you go to many churches, and you see the same kind of emphasis where uh, everything boils down to some sort of angelic influence or demonic influence, and 
so there are numerous problems with that. I want to read you some things out of a book called Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare by Clinton Arnold. And um, the author is the professor of New Testament language and literature and director of the THM program at Talbot Seminary. Unfortunately, his views in this book tell us how far Talbot has sunk into uh, charismatic theology and uh, false demonology. But I want you to get an understanding of what's going on out there outside the walls of Preston City Bible Church. One reason I'm doing that, I, I, I've been um, sort of uh, impressed lately because of a conversation I had with a good friend of mine about oh three or four weeks ago. He was uh, not a member but a part-time attender of a church that was going through the process of looking for a pastor. And the it's an elder rule church, and they had uh, decided on a pastoral candidate, and they had announced it in the bulletin and said on such and such a date, uh, the new pa- the uh, pastoral candidate will be here to speak to the church, and afterwards we'll vote to accept him. So they, <laughs> it was just sort of put that way, and and they they really didn't have any kind of uh, interaction with the congregation or question and answer. But he thought there might be an opportunity, so he wanted me to tell him some questions. So I came up with about five or six good questions that would reveal the guy's theological orientation in terms of free grace versus lordship and dispensationalism and some things like that. And he emailed me back, and he said, okay, those are good questions, but what are the right answers? Now, he really knew what the right answers were, like many of you, but he would not spot it in terms of the technical vocabulary. And so as I thought about that, I I reflected on the fact that part of the role of a pastor, obviously the pastor of that church who had been there for 30 years, had not really trained his congregation to be able to function when he left. And no pastor, and this has application for parents. See, the role uh, that you have as a parent is to train your kids to be able to do without you. When they hit 18, they shouldn't need you anymore. You should have done your job. Now, whether or not they apply what you teach them, well, that's another story. But you should teach them and equip them so that they can function without you. And you don't know when that's going to happen. Same thing's true for a pastor. I may be here in five years. I may be here in five months. I may be here in five years. I may be here in 15 years, but I may not. You know, I could, uh, I've had friends die of heart attacks at my age. So one never knows. You can't count on that. So part of my job as a pastor is to train you so that when that time comes, you're able to spot the idiots that come along looking for a church. And that's not too hard today because that's 99.9% of them. But I want to you know, let you know some of the th- wonderful things that are going on out there in the real world. And in this book, he gives, starts off with this example. He says, the June 24, 1994 edition of the Cronica Seminal, a Guatemala news magazine, ran a cover story on this once popular idol. This is an idol named Maximon down in um, uh, the city of uh, Quetzaltenango down in Guatemala. He says um, uh, they, they ran this article titled, The Defeat of Maximon, Protestant Fundamentalism Alters the Culture of the Altiplano and Turns the Native Religions into Tourist Attractions. Then the writer goes on to say, For many years, groups of Christians in the area had engaged in spiritual mapping 
an aggressive warfare prayer. Now, I want you to notice that vocabulary. So you hear people talking that vocabulary, your, your radar ought to start going off. Bells and whistles and alarms, spiritual mapping. What in the world is it? Where do you find that concept in the Scripture? Uh, aggressive warfare prayer. See, what's happened in the charismatic movement, and it's infiltrated throughout most of evangelicalism in the last 10 or 12 years, is this radical, aggressive, spiritual warfare mentality. And you'll see from what I read to you what, what's involved in that. These uh, groups had engaged in spiritual mapping and aggressive warfare prayer against the territorial spirits. Pay attention to that term. Including Maximon. In addition, four teams of intercessors from Guatemala City had gone to four points of the nation on June 25, 1994, to pray for the country on a specially designated day of prayer. On that day, 70,000 people participated in the March for Jesus in Guatemala City, announcing to the principalities and powers that Jesus, not the Mayan spirits, is Lord over Guatemala. Well, he goes on to say, uh, this is truly newsworthy and something to get excited about. Uh, where it, uh, it it reminds us of some of the amazing events in the first century when the people turned from idols to serve the living and true God. The problem with charismatics is they always want to go back to the first century, and if anybody really understood how screwed up the first century church was, nobody would want to go back to I mean, they didn't even have vocabulary like Trinity or hypostatic union or rapture. They were at the beginning stage of the development of understanding of the Bible, not as far down the road as we are. Uh, it is It is naive and silly to think that somehow the early church had it better than we do today. And yet 90% of the Christians and seminary professors you talk to have the idea that wouldn't it be great if we could get things back to the way they were in the first century. Well, why don't they really go home and read 1 Corinthians a few times? Uh, he goes on to say, where it varies, that is the contemporary issue, very slightly, is in method. Although the preaching of the gospel is still central, an incredible emphasis is now being placed. Now, note that you've got to learn how to read. As soon as somebody says where it's still, uh, although the gospel is still central, that, that, that uh, concessive clause, although, tells you it's really not central anymore. Okay? Although the gospel is still central, an incredible emphasis is now being placed on preparing the ground by dealing with the high-ranking evil angels. Let me tell you, I've been to conferences on this stuff where they were casting out demons and all this. The gospel isn't, not only is it not central, it's not correct. So don't be deceived on stuff like that. They say uh, an incredible amount of emphasis is now placed on preparing the ground by dealing with high-ranking evil angels, territorial spirits, over the region. The unique emphasis on battling territorial spirits has also become a key element in a variety of ministries in the United States. One example is a place called the Dwelling Place in Hemet, California. He goes on to describe that, and he says the pastor was convinced uh, as they were trying to, uh, oh, I, I need to read the whole example. He says, uh, it's really, this is a fun one. Over a decade ago, Pastor Bob Beckett began to have recurring visions of a bear hide stretched out over this large Southland community as he sought the Lord during times of personal prayer. Each of the four corners of the bear hide had claws firmly anchoring the hide into the area. This was his dream. And down the middle of the hide was a strong backbone. What did this image represent? Well, the pastor was convinced. You know, I mean, he generates this out of his own mind. 
The pastor was convinced that this was the ruling demonic spirit over the area. He later discovered that the name of the spirit was Tekitz. Now, how did he discover that, I wonder? He believed that God, you know, how would you discover that unless you were having, engaged in dialogue with the demon? And the Bible forbids that. Um, he believed that God was giving him spe- specific information so he could lead his people in warfare prayers to bring down this territorial spirit and ultimately increase the effectiveness of the church in its outreach and ministry in the community. The pastor then led a group of people from the church in praying against this evil principality. As they prayed, they gained the strong impression, strong impression, that the backbone of the beast was breaking apart and that it was losing its spiritual grip on the area. Further research by the pastor into the history of the area helped him identify the four strongholds of the Bear's Claws, a transcendental meditation center, an Indian reservation. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Uh, a retreat facility for followers of the Maharishi Yogi and a Church of Scientology resort. As the pastor sought the Lord's direction, he sensed, he sensed. Notice the verbs here are all dripping with subjectivity and emotion. He sensed that the Lord was telling him to drive stakes into the ground at four points and raise up a prayer canopy over the area, thus claiming the territory for Christ that once belonged to this evil spirit. After the church took this prophetic action and continued an intercessory prayer for the area, they began to have tremendous success in ministry. The congregation doubled in size in less than a year, but did they learn the Bible? A spirit of love and unity pervaded the church, but were they advancing spiritually? And, and there was a new expression of unity among pastors in the community. Well, isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that warm your heart? But what I want to know is, and see, the, the people who do all this, they also claim that it's crime's going to go down, and you know now the evil spirit's going, all these other things are going to happen. But there's no statistics that ever back that up. It's just a lot of emotion. He goes on to, uh, the author of this piece goes on to say that a few Christian leaders are now culling insights from these accounts and advocating new and specific strategies for battling higher-ranking spirits that wield influence over neighborhoods, cities, geographical territories, and even whole countries. Now, I want to know, what's their source of authority and information on how to battle these demons? The Bible? No. They're culling these experiences and these accounts and building their whole theology of demons and, and, and angels from experience, not from the Bible. Incidentally, these guys are in most of the, uh, I mean, you've got them at, at Talbot Seminary, you've got them at um, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago, you've got them in most of the standard evangelical school. There's nobody at Dallas like this. There's nobody at Chafer or Tyndale. There's nobody like this at the Master's Seminary. But most of the others have people into this. Um, he goes on and gives more more examples. I guess that's enough to make most of you bilious. So we'll stop there. Where they get this, biblically, is from Daniel chapter 10. And what they've done is they've taken just this, these little hints of the fact that behind the the created observable world that we see, there are influences coming from both demons and elect angels. But the Bible doesn't tell us any more than that. And yet they extrapolate entire, not only entire theologies, but entire methodologies of prayer and spiritual warfare and spiritual mapping, all based on these experiences. And really what they've done is, by in, in, in an ironic way, they have immersed the church into full-blown demonism. 
because that's what happens once you start conversing with demons and once you get involved in this kind of aggressive one-on-one attack with demons. It is forbidden in the Bible. We are to be in a defensive posture, not an offensive posture, and that's the point of all the verbs to stand firm in Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following. Also in James chapter 4, 1 Peter 5, the emphasis is on defense. So we have to uh, look at this a little more, with a little more detail than we normally would in Daniel chapter 10, simply because it is a passage that is being blown out of context and is a place for much and uh, the basis for much distortion. So we'll uh, come to that in Daniel chapter 10. What we discover is that uh, Satan is in the process of making a big change in history. We're going to see that he's been uh, very influential in the media Persian Empire, and he's about to turn loose of that and move to the west to Greece. And certain things are going to happen between the kings of Persia and the kings of Greece, and as a result of those battles and wars, some of this we studied in Daniel chapter 8 already, as a result of that and the development of the Greek Empire what will happen is that Alexander will come on the scene, he'll conquer the Persian Empire, and then he dies at a young age, and that empire is split into four. And and one of those regions, uh, the region of Syria, goes to the Seleucids, and one of the Seleucid kings is Antiochus Epiphanes, who's one of the most virulent anti-Semites in the Old Testament. Now, we have to look at the big picture here, because what was going on... See, we have to look at not only in terms of what's going on in terms of the dynamics of history within history, but what's going on now that we see that there's these battles going on between certain angelic and demonic powers that Satan is obviously influencing and moving history. I don't dispute that. Nobody disputes that. It's The question is not that he does it. It's both how he does it and what we're to do about it. See, Daniel, as I want you to note here, Daniel never engages in any kind of prayer against the demons. He never does that. He, 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 he ignores that. He's aware that's what, what's happening, and he's made aware that's what's happening. But it's just so we're aware that's what's happening. Our focus is on God, not on whatever Satan or the demons might be doing. But it helps us to understand a little bit about the dynamic of, of what, uh, from the big picture of what was going on historically. For example, in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, there was a level of anti-Semitism, and there was a, a hatred for Israel. Of course, they destroyed the uh, temple, the, the first temple in 586 B.C., and they had uh, uh, moved most of the Jews out of the land and resettled them in Babylon. But then when the Persians came into power under Cyrus, there was a pro-Semitism. They were in favor of the Jews. And so now Satan is being foiled because Satan Satan develops anti-Semitism in the Old Testament in order to stop the coming of the Messiah. But now he's being foiled in his attempt because in the pro-Semitism of the Babylonians, uh, Cyrus is going to send the Jews back to the land, so now he's trying to stop that. That's what's given rise to, to Daniel's concern here at the beginning of this chapter. He's heard the report that some groups have already gone back under Ezra, but they're, they're, nothing's really happening. They're, they've met with opposition. There are various problems, and that's because Satan is influencing things, trying to keep them from going back into the land. But what he's going to do is he's going to give, basically give up on Persia, 
and he's going to move in the direction of Greece. And ultimately what Satan is doing is he's trying to find another national entity and empire that he can use as a base to build his anti-Semitism again in order to go after Israel. And eventually that culminates in the career of Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's the point of this vision that is going to be explained in the 11th chapter. Well, that gives you the overview, so let's go back to where we started last time with the doctrine of of, uh, the angelic conflict. And the first point I began with last time is that we must understand in the angelic conflict that it it explains the origin of evil, the origin of evil, that evil does not originate inside creation. God is eternal. Let's put a timeline up here on the overhead. God is eternal. There's no beginning and there's no end to God. At some point, God creates the angels. So the angels have a finite starting point, and and then right after he creates the angels, he creates the universe. Job 38, 4 through 7 makes it clear that the angels rejoiced in unity, so there's no division at that point. They're rejoicing in unity when God laid the foundation of the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he creates the angels first, then an abode for their habitation, and that's the universe. And then it is after the creation of the universe, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that Satan falls. And so you have the fall of Satan, and this brings evil into the world. Now, notice the fall of Satan was based on pride. It's a mental attitude sin of arrogance. It's not uh, some sort of overt sin. We're going to get into this more on Sunday morning in 1 Corinthians, that one of the biggest problems you run into again and again and again in uh, American Christianity is that American theologians and pastors just don't know what to do with a Christian who sins. And and they always focus on all these overt sins, and then as soon as you say, well, okay, for example, you've got a person who's a pastor, and he wakes up one morning and decides he's really uh, should have been born a woman, and he needs to have a sex change operation. Well, he wasn't ever really saved. Well, what about the pastor that's in the pulpit that is arrogant in a socially acceptable way and is given over to pride the whole time? Well, that's mental attitude sin. Why is that sin ignored and some overt sin is, is emphasized? And so the arrogant pastor is clearly saved, but the uh, uh, sexually confused pastor um, probably wasn't ever saved. See, they, they, there's such a superficial attitude towards sin and evil. Evil is the result of simply Satan's desire to be independent from God. So it has a finite starting point, and it will have an ending point in that it is going to be evil and Satan and all of those who have rebelled against God, the fallen angels and all unbelievers, human unbelievers in time, will be confined and restricted to the lake of fire at the end of time. So that for the Christian, evil is something that is temporary. But for all non-Christian religions and philosophical systems, they either cannot explain evil, or evil is ultimately is basically confused with good, and it's just uh, it's a very pragmatic distinction. But for every other system, including Darwinian evolution, evil has to be something that is natural to all creation and normal, and has always been there. And there's ultimately no reason outside of creation. See everything under here 
is in the created order. This is creation. And to define evil, you have to appeal to something, some sort of absolute that exists outside of creation. And only Christians have a God who is absolutely perfect righteous, who gives them a standard for being able to determine what evil is. And so in all other religious and philosophical systems, you end up having a worse problem with evil that they can't explain. But they always think they have us because they're going to come to some Christian and they're going to say, well, how can a loving God let horrible things happen to children? And most Christians just don't know enough or think enough. They've never been taught to think deeply about this. And so all of a sudden they just freeze up and I don't really know what the answer is. Well, the answer is, well, you explain it without God. See, they can't explain it without God at all. They're in a worse case. They're just, they're, they're, they're like, uh, somebody living in a house and throwing, throwing rocks. They're not throwing rocks from outside the glass house. They're throwing rocks from inside their glass house. So the starting point to understand the angelic conflict is the, uh, origin of evil. That evil is not normal. It's not part, was not part of the original creation. It, w- it originally came about as a result of Satan's decision to revolt against God. Ezekiel 28, 11 and following and Isaiah 14, uh, 12 and following. Point number two. The angels were created along with the physical creation. And they are considered in the Bible to be a part of God's creation. This is important. I'm going to, a lot of what I'm going to say as we go through the angelic conflict tonight is old news. But I'm going to put a few little twists in here to give you a new perspective on it. The angels were created along with physical creation and are considered as part of creation. Job 38, 4 through 7. Psalm 104, verse 4, and Psalm 14, 82. Let me give those to you again. Job 38, 4 through 7, Psalm 104, 4, and Psalm 14, 82. Angels are part of creation. Now, the third point, in his fall, Satan sought to be his own god or own king over creation. In his fall, Satan sought to be king over creation. He was part of creation, but he wanted to rule creation. As a God, Isaiah 14, 12 to 17, and Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. Now, we don't have time to go into those passages, but uh, you can look them up and be careful. In most of your more modern study Bibles, there are um, the usual notes are saying these passages just refer to a human king. And I've got a section of theology coming out on Satanology and demonology to be published in a systematic theology edited by Mel Couch that will come out next year where I give ten reasons from within the text itself why these passages cannot refer to a human being. They clearly use language that isn't. Uh, What you usually find is somebody saying, well, the language here, like he was in Eden, he was cast down from heaven, that's just metaphor, that's just figurative language. Well, to, to make that kind of a claim, you have to be able to demonstrate where that language is used metaphorically in other places. It's never used metaphorically in other places. There's no other example in secular or ancient literature where that terminology is used as a figure of speech. So the only way you, in, in terms of exegetical methodology, you can't just come along and say, uh, well, that sounds like a figure of speech, so it ought to be a figure of speech. You have to be able to prove by example other places in ancient or biblical literature where those phrases are used in that way, and it doesn't exist. So these passages clearly talk about 
the fall of someone who, who is much greater than any human king. Point number four, as a result of Satan's fall, angels were divided into two classes, what we call evil and elect angels or fallen and holy angels. The evil and fallen angels are further subdivided. I'm not going to go into a study of demonology. Some are active demons. Some are imprisoned. There's two classes of imprisoned demons, those who were involved in the Genesis 6 infiltration of the human race and another group that will be released uh, from the abyss during the tribulation. So you have evil angels and you have the elect angels. Remember, all angels, including Satan, are part of creation. So that brings us to point number five. Man is created after the fall of the angels, and part of his responsibility as a creature in the image and likeness of God is that he is to rule in God's place over nature. Key point, he is to rule over nature. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. He is to rule over all of nature, and that would include, eventually, the angels. Uh, Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Point number 6. Now remember, the angels are created, they're part of creation. Satan falls because he wants to be the one who rules creation. So God then creates man who is to rule over creation. And eventually that would include angels. So Satan, therefore, tempts man in order to get man to follow him in his sin and to prevent man from ruling creation. See, Man was created in order to demonstrate certain things to the angels about Satan's method of operation, that Satan's arrogance, arrogance was an invalid methodology, an invalid mental attitude for being a ruler, that uh, the creature could not rule the, any element of creation independently of the creator. So the man is created to demonstrate also the justice, the true justice and love of God, but Satan wants to destroy all that, but part of what he is destroying is he's trying to keep man from fulfilling his role as a ruler over creation. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 5 describes the temptation. Then point number 7. God's response to the fall of man was to, de- to put into effect a plan of salvation that was oriented to the second Adam the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself would successfully subdue all nature, including Satan and the fallen angels. So this puts everything into a slightly different perspective. The angels are part of creation. Satan rebelled because he wanted to rule creation on his own. Man is created to rule creation and demonstrate the proper uh, mental attitude, the proper relationship to God, authority orientation necessary to rule creation. Satan, part of Satan's assault on man is to prevent man from ruling over all creation, including Satan and the fallen angels. God responds with a plan of salvation, providing the second Adam who will subdue all nature, including Satan and the fallen angels. So Jesus Christ becomes the head of a new uh, species, a new creation, 
and through Jesus Christ, this new creation, which is the church, is going to be able to eventually, not now, not in the church age, but eventually, we will be able, along with the Lord Jesus Christ, to subdue Satan and the demons, and that happens at the second coming, when Jesus, when we return with Jesus Christ at the uh, end of the tribulation. And at which time you have Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 take place, that all everything under heaven will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. So passages on this are Genesis 3, 15 through 19, Romans 5, 12 to 21, Romans 5, 12 to 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, Ephesians 1, 10, Colossians 2:15 and Revelation 5:9 and 10. That's uh, I'll go over those last ones. Ephesians 1:10, Colossians 2:15, and Revelation 5, Revelation 5:9 and 10. So we see that the angelic conflict has a broad, broader dimension in order to demonstrate um, how the creation is to be ruled. Now another. Th- fascinating thing takes place in the biblical revelation of the angelic conflict is that it shows that there is an angelic council that God uses to influence human history. There's a couple of crucial passages on this. I'm, I don't want to take the time. I've done it in the past. I don't want to take the time to, to uh, look at these individually because it will just slow us down too much. But we can look at Job chapter 1. Uh, verses 6 through 12, and we see that Satan still occupies a seat on the, this angelic council. So in Job chapter 1, we're told that when the sons of God, that's a term for all of the angels, fallen angels and holy angels, when the sons of God gathered before God, then Satan came before God and said, well, have you considered, or God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, the only reason Job worships you is because you've blessed him so much. He's wealthy, he's prosperous, he's successful, he's got a wonderful family. If you take all that away from me, He's not going to worship you anymore. He's going to curse you. So there we. So God says, okay, we'll take it all away, and I'll show you that he won't do that. And there we see what evidence testing is all like, that the believer in the midst of trials is giving evidence of God's grace and God's glory and God's sustenance uh, against Satan, that we worship God despite uh, our present circumstances. Furthermore, we look at a passage like 1 Kings 22, 19, 19 through 22, and we see this battle where Jehoshaphat and Ahab are, are, are lined up against the, uh, uh, the Syrians, and they're going to go into battle. And uh, all the false prophets come to Ahab and tell him he's going to be successful, and Ahab finally says, oh, is there somebody who's going to tell me the truth? And so this uh, one prophet, Micaiah, comes out and says, well, this is what God showed me. All the angels were before God in heaven, and God said, who's going to go forth and be a deceiving spirit to Ahab? And see, there we see how even under the sovereignty of God, God uses the evil and the rebelliousness of the angels. Now, that's a passage that if you haven't gone through that with me before will blow your mind because it clearly shows how God uses even the negative volition and the rebellion of the angels to bring about his own glory. But it opens us, once again, it pulls the... The, the, the window shade back so that we can look into that other dimension where the angels and the demons exist to see how they are uh, influential in human history. Another passage is in Revelation chapter uh, 12, verse 4, where the we discover that a third of the angels had followed Satan in his revolt, 
and that they are involved in influencing human history during the tribulation in a much greater way than they have ever done in any other period of human history. Point number nine. Point number nine, Satan doesn't live in just heaven. He doesn't live in hell. Satan is walking about on the earth. Job chapter one and first Peter uh, chapter five, verse uh, nine, ten, and eleven. He is going about as a roaring lion on the earth, seeking whom he may devour. Therefore, we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that God can exalt us and protect us in that against these kinds of assaults. Point number ten. We have to realize that human history is two-dimensional. It's not one-dimensional. It's not just natural. It's not just physical. But there is a metaphysical aspect to it that involves the angels and the demons. But the thing that we have to understand is that's not where our focus is to be. We need to understand that it's influenced that way, but it's not our job to stop that influence. Our job is to have direct communication with God, and then God is the one who deals with the angels. When we see this example in Daniel 10, Daniel is praying to God when he finds out that there's a battle going on between the prince of, of Persia and, and this interpreting angel and Michael. He doesn't change his tactic and start praying about the angels or praying to the angels. See, this is what happens in this modern screwed up view of territorial spirits and spiritual warfare is they start praying against the demons and praying against the territorial spirits. And that's just a completely false, if not heretical, uh, application derived from this, this passage. Point number 11. In Revelation chapter 12, John reveals something about the virgin birth that is not seen in any of the Gospels. Revelation 12.4 is uh, partly historical. It says, His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. That's a reference to the tail of the dragon and the third of the angels that followed him in his revolt. A third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And that happens towards the middle of the tribulation and is yet future. And the indication there is that the demons are going to become visible and active and they're going to be confined to the earth during the second half of the tribulation. So it's going to be bizarre. People are going to walk around and see demons and during the tribulation, during the last part, and they're going to be influential in human affairs. Everything comes together at the end of the tribulation. And then we have sort of a, a look back, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Now, the woman here is Israel, and she's a, the, the birth here is of the Messiah, And it says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. See, this is a picture you don't see in the Gospels, and that is that behind the scenes, historically, Satan sees the birth of the Messiah and wants to destroy the Messiah. And, of course, that's played out in history as part of Herod's attack on the infants and those under the age of two in in Israel. But never do you see the Scripture take this kind of mystical, uh, new-agey kind of approach that's infected the church in trying to do some kind of direct battle with the angels or the demons. It never looks at it that way. It just tells us there there's these two dimensions, 
And there's two influences, but it doesn't go into detail. The problem with so many uh, people is they, they, they are inordinately curious and they want to know how all this works. Well, God hasn't told us that, and that's why we're to stay out of this, because if you get into it, it you will basically come under a lot of demon uh, influence. So point number 11 was that Revelation 12 shows us something new about the virgin birth that's not revealed in the earlier Gospels. Point number 12 tells us that there is a structure or hierarchy to the angels. In some places they are called principalities, from the Greek word arche, which means of the, of the highest level, the first angels, and powers, and this is the word exousia for authorities, and uh, also called world forces. This is uh, the Greek term kosmokrator, which refers to another category or another ranking of angels. You can find these descriptions in Romans 8.38, Ephesians 6.12, First uh, Peter 3.2, where they're referred to as powers. And in First Peter 3.22, the word for powers is dunamis, not exousia. So there's authorities and powers. And I would suggest that those that are designated powers would be those who are involved in miracles, because the same word dunamis is used for, for miracles. And among the demons, they would be involved in promoting false miracles, which, of course, is what's going to authenticate the Antichrist during the tribulations, false miracles. So uh, demons can produce uh, false miracles or pseudo-miracles in order to, to distract believers. Daniel also, in two places, describes different other categories of angels. In Daniel 4.13, Daniel 4.17, Daniel 4.23, he mentions watcher angels. These were angels that watched or observed or guarded certain aspects of history and, and uh, you might say, almost the historical uh, dimensions of empires. And then he refers to these empire angels, what I would call empire angels, just because I don't like that term territorial spirits that the charismatics have come up with. These empire angels, the prince of Persia, prince of Greece, etc. in Daniel chapter 10, verses 13, Daniel 10, 20, and 10, 21. Okay, with that background from the angelic conflict, let's look at what happens here in Daniel uh, chapter 10. Daniel 10, 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. Now, this is the interpreting angel speaking to Daniel, and he's describing why it took so long to get his prayer answered. See, we think that God didn't hear us, that somehow God's out. He's concerned about the Middle East right now, so he's not paying attention to my problem. You know, or, you know somehow God's taking a nap. But uh, there are other aspects at work here, and so Daniel's praying day after day after day, and Daniel... Daniel 9, it took just instantaneously for the angel to show up, and here it takes three weeks. And we find out why, and that is that he is involved, he's come to help out Daniel, but he's been opposed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, the prince of the kingdom of Persia is a demon, not a human being, and notice there's just one demon over the entire uh, empire of Persia. It's his responsibility to influence the the Persian Empire. Now, whether or not it's right to extrapolate from this, I don't know. The Bible doesn't, so we shouldn't. 
And what's happened with this doctrine of territorial spirits is they will say that, that have you ever noticed that some neighborhoods, some streets, there are more Christians than others? That's because of territorial spirits. So if you've got a bunch of Christians on your street and there aren't any on the other street, it's because there are territorial demons on that other street. So we have to pray down those territorial demons and we have to uh, have, have these uh, pr- prayer sessions and do this spiritual mapping and you know, none of that comes out of the Bible. The Apostle Paul never heard of any of that stuff. This was mostly invented by a bunch of uh, fruits and nuts out in Southern California. All we're told here is the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. There was a battle in the heavenlies, and this interpreting angel had to call on aid Notice he had to, and it doesn't say that he is successful because Daniel kept praying. This is another wacko idea that came out in the late 80s. There was a couple of real popular spiritual warfare novels that came out called Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness by a guy in, uh, from the Northwest named Frank Peretti. And they've been bestsellers and completely confused a lot of people, including uh, doctoral students that I knew at Dallas Seminary back in the late 80s. Oh, isn't it wonderful? It encouraged me to pray. I said, yeah, they encouraged you to pray because it basically taught the doctrine that angels couldn't do anything unless you prayed. Do you believe that? Oh, no, of course not. So you were encouraged to pray by false doctrine. That's good. And you're getting your doctorate in theology from Dallas Seminary? Explain this to me. I mean, people came to say, well, it's just fiction. Well, Jesus used parables. Parables are fiction. Fiction can teach theology. And this guy was the, the author was the son of an assembly of God, a charismatic pastor, and this is a novel, a fictional form of teaching this kind of uh, uh, hyper spiritual warfare heresy that came out, started coming out back in the back in the eighties. And one of the things they taught is that that the holy angels are empowered by the prayers of the saints. So the more we pray, the more powerful they become. It's like blowing up a big balloon. The more you pray, the bigger and stronger the holy angels become. And if the church doesn't pray, the weaker and weaker they become, and then the demons win. It's just this mystical garbage that that's just, it's like superstitious nonsense. And yet, it, I'm telling you, back in the 80s, Tommy and I you were, were writing against this stuff. In fact, writing against this is what gave us the opportunity to write the book on spiritual warfare. Uh, one of the heads of uh, Harvest House, president of Harvest House, read one of our uh, book reviews and called us up and said, we want you guys to write a book on this because uh, nobody is saying the kinds of things that you're saying. You seem to be the only people out there saying anything biblical. So... Um, now this stuff is mainstream. Back then it was in the fringe in the late 80s, but now it's mainstream in, in most churches because of the influence of, of uh, books like Peretti's novels. I mean, it, it just suckered people, and they sold. I think the last time I saw a copy on a bookshelf, it said that over 3 million were in print. So um, we have to be careful about looking at and seeing exactly what the Scripture says. Now we go on to verse 14 and we read, Now I have come to you to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. See, that's the purpose for the prophecy, is so the Jews will know what's going on, especially during this time of anti-Semitic persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes, so that they can have hope in the darkest days of the persecution in the second and 
third century B.C., they will know God still has a plan for Israel, and so they can relax and be confident even when everything seems to be falling apart, even when their nation is being invaded by the Syrian army, even when Antiochus Epiphanes is going in setting up a, a blasphemous idol in the Holy of Holies and sacrificing a pig to, to Jupiter in the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple, the Jews can relax and know that God's still in control, at least the ones who are positive and learning, and learning the lesson. So the angel says, this purpose of this vision is to give you understanding for your people, for this vision pertains to the days yet future. Then in verse 15, And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I, that is Daniel, turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. He's just done by what he's learning. Then in verse 16 we read, And behold, one who resembled a human being. So again we see that angels don't look like these mystical, airy-fairy, white, golden-haired, winged, two-winged creatures you see in Renaissance paintings. In fact, they didn't start, if you study the history of art, they didn't start putting wings on figures of angels until you get into the Byzantine period, and that's a reflection of all kinds of bizarre theology that came up during the Byzantine period in about 6th, 7th, 8th century A.D. So... um, the angel looks like a human being. They always look like a human being in Scripture. Uh, resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, Oh, my Lord. He's, that, that's like saying, Sir. He's showing uh, 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 respect for the angel. Oh, my Lord, as a result of this vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. Now, remember, Daniel's 85 or 90 years of age, and he's just overwhelmed by all that he's seeing here and realizing all of the suffering that's going to come to his people in the next uh, few centuries and, in in fact, in what would be going up to Daniel's the, the 70th week of the vision in Daniel uh, chapter 9. Then in verse 17 we read, For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as me? Daniel is just showing his respect for the angel and saying, How can you talk with me? As for me, there remains now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. And we see his genuine humility here. Verse 18, Then the one with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. Incidentally, this is like the third angel that we've seen here. There was the interpreting angel, and then there was uh, the reference to Michael, and now we're, this is a third angel. And they seem to be, have trouble keeping Daniel going. He's, he's 85 or 90, and he just uh, seems a bit frail here. Another thing we notice here is that the angels seem to be, there's, there's a sense in the pace of the Hebrew that they're in a hurry to get Daniel to pay attention. We need to go. You need to get the message. We've got a job to do because something's happening uh, outside of history in the supernatural realm that we need to deal with. So Daniel then says in verse 19, O oh, man of high esteem, uh, don't be, uh, excuse me, the angel says to Daniel, verse 19, O oh, man of high esteem, do not be afraid. In other words, calm down. Doctrine will stabilize your emotions even in the midst of crisis. Listen to what we have to say. Peace with you. Take courage and be courageous. And that's a message for every believer today in the midst of this war on terrorism. People around the country had a lady call me this morning talking about uh, how fearful uh, everybody is. She is now in a... In a um, uh, retirement home, and she has a tremendous opportunity to witness to other folks that are there, and she says the level of fear 
that is governing uh, so many people in America today is uh, is palpable. And she's had tremendous opportunities to to witness to people and share the gospel and give them promises. So uh, we read, uh, the angel says, Peace be with you, take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, Daniel says, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Verse, then we come to verse 20. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth. See, he's in a hurry. I need to give you this information. I'm going to leave because I've got to go fight the, pers- the prince of Persia. And as I'm going forth, behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Things are changing in this dimension that is beyond human history, and I need to give you this information, make sure you understand the vision, and I've got to get back to the battle. So this whole chapter opens up for us this other dimension that takes place of true warfare in the heavenlies between the angels and gives us an idea that of how God works to control human history. He doesn't do it independently of events either within the created order, but he does it through the angels and through uh, believers. Uh, Daniel 10.21, the angel goes on to say, However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So he's fighting with Michael. You don't have these pictures portrayed by Peretti and others in these fictional accounts of armies and armies of angels doing battle with armies and armies of demons. You have one demon. Uh, you have one holy angel fighting alongside of Michael. We don't have myriads and myriads of angels involved in these sort of uh, empire or imperial struggles that are influencing human history. Well, that gives us insight into what goes on behind the scenes. We can just imagine. Don't let your imagination run away with you now. We can just imagine, though, what must be taking place as we look around with this war on terrorism. That doesn't justify us to pray against the demons or pray to the angels. Daniel never does that. Daniel continues to pray directly to God and to apply doctrine. That's the believer's responsibility, and to rest and relax and the principles of doctrine, and that God controls human history. We understand the methodologies and the dynamics of what's going on behind the scenes, but that's not the issue. The issue is our personal relationship with God, our growth to spiritual maturity, and advance in the spiritual life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of the fact that we are part of a large, larger uh, scenario, and that is the battle, the, the rebellion of the angelic conflict, that we as believers are here to be trophies of your grace and to be witnesses on, on your behalf against the calumnies and against the charges of Satan and the demons. Father, we pray that you would uh, keep us strong in doctrine, that we might not be distracted by these false teachings that are so prevalent today, uh, nor that we would be distracted by our own sin nature, our own fears and anxieties, but that as believers who understand your word, know your promises, that we might stand firm, relaxed and courageous, and that we might be used by you as witnesses to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.